You're listening to the Gary Cook Podcast here on the Senior Times. Now, my guest today is a titan of Irish sports broadcasting. From Saturday's sports stadium to the Olympic Games to 34 years in the hot seat of the Sunday game and much more besides. Michael Lister, you are very welcome. And I am delighted to be here. Yeah, and it's it's funny to sit across the table from you and not think that I'm actually talking to Eamon Dunphy. But <laughs> now, 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 listen, you're a respect. Okay, let's get straight to it. You're a spoofer and you know it. Right? Yeah, I know that. Yeah, I don't okay. need Dunphy to tell okay, me that. Okay. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's let's start with the with the present. Okay. Yeah. You yeah. retired in 2018. 2019, 2019. Yeah, 2019. Yeah, but I finished on the Sunday game in 2018. Okay. Yeah. So. What has retirement been like for you? Do you know what? It's actually been fine. And I've been enjoying it. And I know this is a big debate for people when they reach retirement. And I've seen this with one or two other people. They don't maybe fully accept it, you know. And I think at at 65 that it is too young to be retired. In a general conversation sense about it. But talking about myself in particular, I was okay with it. And maybe... There were two reasons that I was okay with it. First of all, because I had reached the end of the road. I was 65. I was a full-time employee in RTE. That was retirement age. I knew five years before that, that I was heading out the door in 2019. Unlike people, you know, that I would have worked with who would have been called into the office, into the head of sports office and told, listen, sorry about this, but we're not renewing your contract. You know, that would be a tough one, obviously, you know. Uh, and I didn't have that. I When I finished the last Sunday game in 2018 or the last All-Stars in 2018, I knew that was it. I knew that was the, the final one and there was no kind of going back. But the other thing about it, Gary, in my case was because of my health issues and because what happened to me in the 10 years or whatever it was at the time previous to that, um, with heart failure, with a mini stroke and then with a the cardiac arrest, to have actually got to the end of the road at all was a triumph because really after my cardiac arrest, which was in 2015, I should have died that night. And and instead, I did another three seasons or two and a half seasons of the Sunday game. So you felt you kind of got away with one there. And I remember coming away from the Sunday game that last night, driving home and thinking to myself, yeah, you know what? You actually made it. Fair enough. I'll take that. So, yeah, so retirement's been good. Um, that's uh, It's an incredible story. Uh, I, I, it's funny because I was talking to um, to Fergal here, our, our producer, yeah. engineer. Uh, and clapper, hand clapper. Uh, um, and I, I said to him, you know, should I really start with this issue about the about Michael's uh, yeah. health issues? Because he's heard, he's talked about it so often. I don't want to overload him with this stuff, but you went straight into it. So I know, but as well as that, I had an experience like that myself. In actual fact, going back in the day when I joined RTE first, and I was on Radio Sport to begin with, I got this assignment one day to interview Nikki Lauda. Former world... Uh, uh, Formula One champion. Yeah. yeah, Formula One champion and motor racing uh, legend. And, and nearly killed himself. Nearly killed yes. in 1977 in the Nürburgring. And I was allocated a time between him getting off the plane at Dublin Airport and going into the mansion house where he was attending this special function. So I sat in the car with him and with my tape recorder and... I'm talking away to him about his career and all the rest of it. And, but I know, like, looming in the background is this thing about your accident. And I was doing the same thing as you mentioned a moment ago. Should I ask him about it? If I do, will he, will he get the car stopped and have me thrown out and all the rest of it? So eventually I said to myself, I can't, I can't go back without broaching this topic. So I said it to him. I said, look, Nicky, I said, you don't want to dwell on it, but a couple of years. And it was only a few years after he actually had the accident. Uh this incredible crash that you had when you're nearly killed and all that. And he was totally matter-of-fact about it. He had no problem talking about it and going into the detail. And he was, even in a, in a kind of offhand way, he was kind of funny about it because he, he talked about waking up in the hospital and they were explaining to him what happened and how he had the crash and blah, 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 and all the rest of it. And he asked for a mirror. And to quote himself, they gave me the mis- this mirror and I looked at him and said, Jesus, I look like a stuffed pig. <laughs> so... <laughs> I do. I remember that on, on the yeah. news and, and uh, his, um, 
Yeah, it must be pretty hard to wake up to 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 that. But you, so we might as well get this story out of the way because it yeah. is an amazing story. It is extraordinary. It's, it, it is. It's it's uh, as you said. I've I've been asked this a couple of times, obviously over the last couple of years, and I've talked about it. And that sometimes when I'm talking about it, I kind of half feel myself that I'm making it up. You know, because it is actually so it's fake news. I'm kind of there talking about it and thinking, nobody's going to believe this. You know. So what but, happened? Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. In 2012, I had heart failure, and and the reason that I'm explaining this is people often say to me, "How you sent your heart attack?" Which is a different scenario. Yeah. The heart failure that I had in 2012 was just it's what it says on the tin. It was a gradual failing of my heart which is a progressive thing. And that was happening through the late summer of 2012 and into the autumn time and all that. And I was gradually feeling worse every day and not knowing what was quite wrong with me. I thought I had a cold, I thought I had the flu, I thought I had a virus, sort of my GP, funnily enough. And, and I eventually said to my GP, when I was getting so bad I couldn't pull up with it anymore, I said, look, I said, there was something wrong here. I thought I had cancer. And he said, look, we can send you in for tests and see what happens. So I went into the Blackrock Clinic and I was in it, I'd say, not quite a half an hour. They told me the test would take about an hour when a heart specialist was called and he said, I'm not letting you out of this hospital. You're in big trouble. So that was the heart failure. And, and I got over that and they put me on medication and changed my diet and various things and blah, blah, blah. And I was actually starting to feel fine, but in 2013, I suffered a mini stroke, which is kind of related to the heart failure because they put you on medication that breaks up the plaque in the system so that you don't get blockages. In your, but sometimes part, particles of the plaque can actually get caught in a vein or an artery or something like that. And that's what a mini stroke is. And in most cases, as was with me, it can clear within 24 hours or 20, 48 hours maybe in that sometimes it can be worse than that and can be actually fatal but I got over that in 2015 I can tell you that I was as fit as I had been in 20 years because I had been following the program watching diet taking exercise looking after myself as they say and and then out of the blue I suffered this cardiac arrest in 2015 I was playing golf down in Portumna and Vincent Hogan had driven me up and down. Vincent is a sports feature writer in the Irish Independent. And he dropped me back to the house. And I think that I'm, I, I'm not sort of attached to my mobile phone, but I'm nearly fair, fairly careful about where I, I put it and that sort of thing. But I got into the house and realized I'd left the phone in his car. And I picked up the house phone and rang him. And I said, Vincent, if you're not gone too far, I said, my phone is in your car. I said, don't worry about it. I can get it tomorrow. I don't need it because this was about midnight. And he said, no, look, I'm just down the road. I can turn around and come back. And I went out of the living room, opened the front door, waiting to meet him. And that's the last I remember from Friday until I think the following Tuesday or Wednesday or something like that. And what happened from his perspective was he came back to the house. The front door was open and I was lying in the hallway. And obviously for a moment or two, he wasn't quite sure exactly what was going on, but naturally quickly realized there was something wrong. And he called my wife, Anne, who was in bed and she came down and she performed CPR while she got him to ring for an ambulance. Now, she wasn't trained in it, but she knew, and this is something that they will tell you about CPR, do something, whatever it is, do something. So that's exactly what she did. She started to perform CPR. And I suppose I was fortunate also from the point of view that the ambulance port where I live is actually up the road from the house. It's less than a mile from the house. So the ambulance was actually down very quickly and on the scene. And um, I started to get the, obviously the shock treatment and all that kind of stuff. Um, I asked the guys who were involved, I met them a short while afterwards roughly kind of how many shocks would they give you and they didn't want to answer that directly because there isn't a definitive amount but they more or less indicated to me that after you get to about four you're beginning to thinking of calling it because you may be required someplace else there's no point obviously in trying to revive somebody who's not going to make it 
Um, but that night I actually got seven in total. Uh, the total being, I think it was five when I was lying on the floor and then I suffered a second cardiac arrest in the ambulance or getting into the ambulance and I required another shock or two. So I suppose you, you would have to say in reality, the chances of surviving that in the circumstances were either by just luck. I mean, had I decided to, to drive myself down to the golf that day, which I was going to do until Hogan rang me and said, I'll give you a lift. Um, then I wouldn't have made it. I wouldn't have had, or if I had picked up my phone in the car and brought it into the house, I would have been dead in the morning when everybody got up, you know? So it's, it's just one of those things. It's the classic case, I think, of it was either your time or it wasn't your time. And obviously it wasn't. So. Yeah, well, it's, so it sounds like, as they say, a near death experience. Uh, but very you, much so. Yes. You didn't see a white light, did you? No, and I was asked that a few times afterwards. Like, did you see angels, or just did you see white lights, or did you hear music, or something like that? You know? The Sunday game. Music. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm I'm sorry, folks. I I neither saw white lights or burning flames or anything like that. I saw nothing. Uh, okay. Well, apparently, according to YouTube. That there's uh, about eighty percent of people don't remember anything or even more. So, yeah, the, yeah. The, so you had a near death experience, but you just didn't have the experience. Correct. Yeah, <laughs> it was near, but it wasn't actual death. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and how did, how did you kind of recover? I don't mean so much physically, but psychologically, that must have been incredible. Uh, there, there's you go you. through a, you go through sort of phases with it. Um, of first of all of course realizing how lucky that you were then i wanted to get back on television as quick as i could um and didn't do too bad from that point of view but there were protocols to go through with rte so it was actually i think six weeks before i got back on the air again and back on the sunday game because we were in the middle of the championship season of course in 2015 and and that old competitive thing had just already kicked in with me. I wanted to be back in the chair as quick as I could, or put it another way, I wanted whoever was in the chair to be out of it as quick as they could. <laughs> of course. So Somebody else is was, going, oh, Michael's problem yeah, is my opportunity. I know, I know. Yeah, of course. And, you know, and, but anyway, um, but I did have an experience when I did come back onto the programme, and it was in Croke Park. I can't actually, Gary, remember what the match was now off the top of my head. But I'm back in the studio and I'm waiting for the program to go on air. And about a minute before air or 30 seconds, I got this overwhelming feeling that I shouldn't be there. You know, that this was just too unreal. And it was almost like a panic attack. Didn't quite get to panic attack, but it was it was close enough to it. And I'm sitting there thinking, what is going on? You know, that kind of way. And and I didn't know, am I, am I going to open my mouth? What's going to happen and all that? But of course, the classic thing happened. The Sunday game music started to play. The program went on air. And the next thing, the red light goes on in front of me. And the uh, floor manager just kind of points at me. And I started talking. And why I started talking, I have no clue. But I did. And that was it. That was, it was that mo kind of moment past. And I was back into it again. And it was fine. But then up and down after that... Um, in our time over the last couple of years, you, you do get these kind of weird feelings every now and again. I shouldn't be here, you know, and you have to kind of process that in yourself. It's not, it doesn't bother me too much now, but it certainly did for a year or two afterwards, that feeling you should be dead kind of, you know, and then you think to yourself, well, well look, stop, you, you know, you're just, you're just wrecking your own head thinking like that kind of, you know, so. Is there any kind of liberation in that though in the sense that you've experienced something that you did effectively die you are Lazarus yeah and Jesus yeah there, uh, is, there is there actually is yeah and and it, it comes in in sort of different forms an obvious one is how lucky you are you know um on the other side of it, I am probably very glad that I had retired from rally driving at this stage because I'm sure I would now be a completely mad, reckless idiot in the car thinking nobody can kill me. Kind of, you know. But so, yeah, you do you do kind of seesaw and you go through all of these kind of phases or emotions and all that sort of thing. But as I said, it is now whatever it is, five years ago or 
So, uh, and it, it kind of gradually kind of subsides and, and you just get on with your life, I suppose, and just say, fine, look, that, that was that and here we go, kind of, and other things could happen to you. Of course. Well, the, the thing I find about getting older is that, um, you know, these things are uh, inevitable for people. People will experience ill health and you're not, one is not a machine. Sure. Uh, I, was so reading, I was reading there recently Jeremy Clarkson. He had a, an article I saw in, he said yeah, he was afraid Afraid of dying. of dying. But Jerry McClarkson, at the time of writing it, was 62. And I was reading it, and I kind of half got where he was coming from, but the other half of my head is saying, get over yourself, mate. You're relatively young. You have plenty of time left ahead of you. Just live your life and stop sort of fretting about things that you have no control over. So, you know, uh, I think we're all in that boat. To, to a large degree. Were you a kind of an existentialist angst kind of guy? You, no. You don't give me that impression. No, uh, no, no. That wouldn't, that wouldn't be me. It was, just, it was just having gone through that particular experience. Of course, it takes you to a place that happily most people have never been to. But, uh, and it gives you an experience that, that kind of is, is so bizarre and beyond your control and all that kind of thing. But I'm not a warrior, in other words. In general terms, I'm fairly relaxed about life, you know, but uh, but but sometimes whether you're relaxed about life or not, there are things that happen to you that you're entitled to be worried about. I mean, let's, let me put it to you this way. <laughs> My heart issues haven't magically been cured. I still have a bad heart, you know, and and that hasn't gone away. But then having said that, I know a man who is 92 years of age who had a triple bypass in the 80s. And back in the 80s, that was a big deal. Oh, yeah. Still is a fairly major deal. But I mean, it was particularly then it was still a pioneering kind of surgery. And he's 92 and he's still dead and hearty. And it's, you know, so what, what can you do? And then there are people, unfortunately, who, as we all know, who've passed away in their 40s or 50s and that. So you can you can wreck your own head thinking about things like that or you can just get on with life. Well, that is true because I think, you know, worrying about the outcome of things, it's, if you're a worrier, that's what you do. And I am a bit of a worrier, but it's a form of kind of um, it, it, mental gymnastics is the yeah. euphemism for it. Yeah. Uh, and it's not particularly not particularly good for you because it doesn't it doesn't alter... It doesn't alter what's going to happen in, in the end, but it does alter your day when you're thinking about it. Sure, exactly. Yeah, so, there, was, there was a thing I, I read, and I, I don't remember the exact detail of the, the philosophy behind this, but I, I know the general trend of it. It was a thing called Why Worry? And it began about somebody having an accident. And the gist of it was, if you have an accident, you're either badly injured or you're not injured. And if you're not injured, why worry? If you're badly injured, you either survive it or you don't. You know, and it goes on like this. And then it finally comes down to you're either dead or you're not dead. And, you know, if you're not dead, if you're not dead, fine. And if you're dead, well, what's the point in worrying anyway? <laughs> so you survived uh, several kind of death experiences, really, in, on the Sunday game, of course, getting yes. stared at by Sherlock Nan alone. Yes, yeah, just exactly. be described as, as a near-death experience. Let's go back to the. <laughs> let's go back. To, we'll talk about Cher later. Let's go back to the beginning. Um, uh, it's it's fascinating. You mentioned motor uh, racing there. I know you're into that. We'll talk about that in a little while. You uh, were born in Waterford and you lived then in Galway. You went yeah. to Galway. You know what was your upbringing like? Yeah, I was born in Waterford because my my dad was a guard and he was stationed in Waterford at the time. And he married. My father was Martin Lester. He married Mary Clooney, who was a famous Irish traditional Irish dancer at the time, and was actually three times Irish champion. And we actually had the, the All-Ireland trophy in our house because if you won it three times, you got to keep the trophy. Um, but he, shortly after I was born, like a year or two after I was born, he got a move back to Galway. He was originally from Galway, so he got a move back to Galway. So I grew up in Galway. And, and I would identify with being a Galway person, obviously. It's where you went to school. It's where you went to mass on Sunday and had your friends and blah, blah, and all those experiences. And, and I have a lot of relations in Waterford and close family ties and all that kind of stuff. But a couple of years ago, Galway and Waterford played in the All-Ireland Hurling Final of 2017. Yeah. And people who knew my background said to me, well, who are you going to be supporting on Sunday? And this wasn't even a question. You know, they, they thought I might say, well, I was born in Waterford, so I, you know, no, I wasn't. I'm a Galway man through and through, but I was born in Waterford. Mm. 
And you're upbringing in, in Galway? In Galway, you... in a small village called Barnajarug in, uh, in Galway, North Galway. And I have to say, it was a very pleasant upbringing. Um, I had loads of friends and, and everybody knew Martin Lestruck because he was the local guard, you know. So I was growing up, I was never me, I was always Martin Lester's son. You know, and uh, and people would call to the house all the time because they wanted a favour from the guard or they wanted to hand in a form or they didn't have time maybe to go to the barracks during the day and all that kind of stuff. So it was that kind of house. Like people were always calling in and looking for the guard and all this kind of thing. And there were there were actually there were two pubs in the village and one pub stuck by the rules very tightly and the other pub maybe were a little bit more lax and one was annoying the other by all of this so very often the pub who stuck by the rules would ring down to our house to complain about the other pub but the problem about that was my father was in a pub in tune usually and <laughs> my mother would have to ring that pub to get him to come out to put on his uniform to go into the other pub to sort them out, you know, so it was all this kind of stuff. But That's uh, a fair balancing act. A fair balancing act, yeah. It, it always interests me, guards, um, particularly from, from that kind of time, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, and when Ireland was a very small, mm. very small place, and they knew presumably everybody's yeah. business, yeah. and they had to take a kind of median line 100%. on this, yeah. you know. So, so I presume it's where uh, that kind of um, vague Irish language comes from. You kind of go, ah, sure, look, you know, know. <laughs> it well, exists it was, for a it reason. Was, it was very much like that because really he was the sheriff in the area. And, and it was exactly as you say, and policing is so much different now. Things have moved on, have moved to a different place and all that. But I don't remember him ever having serious problems with the locals. But if there was problems, it would be sorted out locally. Mm. You know, words would be said and warnings would be given. But very few people actually ended up in a courthouse. So there was a way of doing things, you know. Sure, sure. And when you were growing up then as well, were you big into sports? Was yeah, you- I was. Yeah, I was, I was always into sport and it was all kinds of sport, but having said that, the GEA pitch in the village was across the road from our house. So evening times coming into spring or summertime, once the evening started to get long and all that kind of thing, you'd be inside pretending that you were doing your homework or your studies or whatever. And as soon as you heard a football being kicked across the road, I was gone. Like I was out the door and across the road. And usually attempts would be made by my mother to lug me back in again and say things like, you have the junior cert coming up on, you know, or you have the leaving cert coming up on whatever. And I'd, I'd say, yeah, 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 fine, you know, but... Uh, Were you good? Great Did time. You enjoyed no, it? No, I was, I enjoyed sport and I was okay at it, but I wasn't exceptional at it. Uh, but I didn't care, Gary, even though I'd become associated with the GEA and the Sunday game, obviously, and all that kind of thing. I didn't care across the road whether the ball was round or oval or whatever, or square or whatever shape it was, or whether it was soccer or rugby or anything else. It was just football. And we went and we played football and happy out. Yeah, because you give me the impression, even though you are absolutely synonymous with the Sunday game, and I know it's, a, it's quite an, um, it must be quite a responsible position because I know the GAA are very particular about how it's represented and all that kind yeah. of stuff. It's a different, a different issue, but 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 just culturally, where where, where you would have been been coming from. But you give mm. me the impression that you're very much a citizen of the world in terms of your attitude towards sport. Yeah. I know you've done a lot of stuff. I, uh, I played a lot of soccer actually. And, and the reason that I played a lot of soccer is when I left school, I started work on a temporary basis, first of all, in the sugar factory in Chum. And, and that looked like it was going to become a permanent scenario uh, simply because I had relations in the sugar factory. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and while all of this process was going on, I saw an ad in the local Chum Herald newspaper looking for a junior reporter. And I applied and I got the job. And... And then my life went down a different route. But a, a lot of the stuff that you did in the Tomb Herald, apart from the court cases and the county council meetings and blah, blah was a core sport, mm-hmm. a local sport, a local GEA and that kind of thing. So in order for me to cover the matches on a Sunday, 
I was part of the soccer club, so you could play soccer on Saturday or Sunday morning. They used to play the fixtures in Galway back in the time on a Sunday morning, not to clash with the GEA fixtures. And, and that just suited me down to the ground. So I actually played an awful lot of soccer and didn't actually play an awful lot of GEA, but did cover a lot of GEA back in the day. Yeah, it's interesting. You always get the feeling the places that were ports um, had a more rounded kind of sense and when I went went to work in Galway for reasons of ent- the entertainment industry, yeah. I always got the feeling that it wasn't it wasn't mired in a certain kind of monoculture. Sure, kind of. It, sure. it seemed to be quite yeah. quite eclectic. Well, Galway is a good example. Um, it is a, a big GEA county, as you know, yeah. but also it's a rugby county. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's a soccer county. McGee, who didn't? Uh, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, was it Adam McGee? Paul McGee yeah. played for Galway a guy who used to play for QPR hadn't he in England that's right yes yeah. yeah I remember he played and for Chick DC played for Aston that's Villa that's right and yeah and he played I think I think I played against Chick once um, I definitely know I played a couple of times in Terryland Park which was then oh, I remember Galway Rovers and Galway United's uh, which was incredibly um, when it was raining the pitch was pretty it was it was it was it was tough on the legs, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. well, I'll, I'll take rain as an excuse for actually playing in a cup final in Terryland Park for the local club, St. Bernard's, that I used to play with and giving away a penalty, I think, in the first minute or two of the match. And if you ever felt like a complete plunker with your teammates, kind of, you know, this big game and your man gives away a penalty. The, the winger was, I was playing right back. The winger was just too quick for me. I think his name... I'm just dragging this off the top of my head now. It was a guy called Fido Cassidy. But uh, he went past me like a bullet and except you. I managed to get the gun out before he got too far, <laughs> kind of, you know. And we were one nil down before you could shake a leg, as they say. And then we missed a penalty. And this thing looked bad. Well, we actually won the final. We actually won the match in the end. And, and that team that I was on is having a 50th get-together Later this year, in actual fact, just to celebrate the club and all that kind of stuff, uh, which I'm heading west for. So, yeah, I've obviously been partly forgiven over the years. I remember when I saw my friend who played for home farm at the time. Um, I was watching a game, I was working down there and I watched the game and it started raining. And Paul McGee was playing. He just kind of highlights in his hair. Yeah, yeah. Something yeah. in the crowd shouted, get an, get an umbrella for McGee. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. Um, so, so Tume, you must have known uh, or been covering the early Saw Doctors at that point, were you? That band? Yeah, yeah. Um, the ends. Wish I was in the end seventeen. I tell you, I tell you about all that scene when I was in the Tume Herald. Wasn't a music I, place, by the way, Tume. Oh, it was. Yeah, it was yeah. a show band town. Um, the Ohio show band and the Johnny Flynn show band. I could name guys like that who were all based in Tume. It was a bit like Mullingar became, we'll say, with the Swarbriggs and the Times show band and Joe Dolan, Joe of course, Dolan, and all yeah. that sort of thing. Tume mm-hmm. was very much that kind of thing. Um, but back in my time in the Tume Herald, I started a music column with a colleague of mine, Tom Gilmer. And I covered the pop and rock side of it, and Tom covered the country and western and all that. And it was a very popular article with people. And that but when uh, the Saw Doctors started off, and all, I knew all the lads in it, Davy Carton and the various lads in it, but they started off as kind of a proto-punk group mm. called Blaze X. And, and that was their start. And then there was a kind of a slight hiatus, and then they became this thing that became the Saw Doctors and a, mm. a different kind of sound. And as you said, the N17 and I have fallen for her mother. Da, 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 uh, he, it was actually I've fallen for another. For uh, another, was it? I'm, well, sure, they, it was mother, I'm right. sure they'd be morphed into that. <laughs> they were a great band. I really liked them. Uh, and they, they, they kind of had a... Um, there was there was a kind of redefining of a certain kind of Irish expectation. There was almost a father tetness in a clever way about them, and well, the songs yeah. were really good. Yeah, there was because they they kind of uh, reached across a couple of divides, but at the same time, their essence to me was always in a kind of a, a show band kind of philosophy, even though they weren't obviously a show band. But it was that entertain the crowd, you know, send yeah. them home sweating kind of. 
philosophy about the whole thing. Sure, that they, they very much had that that sense. And and the, what's the singer's? I can't remember the singer's name. Of the song, well, Jamie Carton yeah, was the singer. Okay. Yeah, his lyrics. You know, there was a kind of strange, alienated. Um, a, kind of got into the underbelly of things and almost like a Morrissey from the Smiths kind of way. Well, yeah, yeah. And and things kind of, if you listen to the lyrics of things like the N17 and all that kind it's of stuff. It's a sad song. A, yeah, that's the it's point. A beautiful song. That's the point, yeah. Song, yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, no. And by the way, if you're ever away in, in America, uh, one of the most, uh, as an Irish person, I mean, when Irish people are jarred, that song will come out. Oh, sure. No matter where you come from. Yeah, it's a bit like the fields of Athenry. Yeah, yeah, you get exactly. the full the full vocal treatment. Okay, let's move on. Uh, you got into RT then 1980. So how did you get the job? And, and that was a big job to get. A bit like the scenario that I told you about of being in the sugar factory and applying for this job in the Toom Herald. Uh, I'm in the Toom Herald. And I was there for about six years. And, I'm, and I was actually very happy in the West and happy working in Chewham and living in the West and all that kind of stuff. But I'm sitting down in the office one day and I'm flicking through the Irish Independent. And I see this ad in 1979 for uh, RTE were looking for sports reporters for this new radio channel, Radio 2, which had set up that year. That's right, yeah. And I decided to apply. I had no intention of going to RTE or joining this channel or anything else. But I thought, here's a chance to get to visit the national broadcaster, kind of go up and have a day out and maybe meet Gay Bourne or Mike Murphy. I mean, it was as simple as that. I mean, there was no more to it than that. Really? So I applied and I was called for an interview and went up and I looked around RT, had a, had a gulp around the place and all that kind of stuff. And I, and I did see Gay Bourne. I saw him leaving the complex and wondering why he wasn't driving a bigger car. I thought he'd be in like a chauffeur-driven Merc or something like that. I think he had a Renault 5 or something at the time. But anyway, um, and I got called back then for a second interview, which was a voice test and a script writing test and all that kind of stuff. And, and then I got a letter to tell me I'd gotten one of the jobs. There were four positions and that I'd been offered one of the jobs. And... At this stage, I'm kind of thinking, right, this is getting a bit serious here now. This is kind of moving down the road a bit further than I kind of thought, mm. you know. So much so that I didn't actually reply to the letter until another letter arrived a couple of weeks later. And the general gist of it was, we don't really care whether you join us or not, but would you make up your bloody mind because we want to offer it to somebody else? And it was that kind of spur of the moment kind of thing. What do I do? You know, and I just just took this decision. Do you know what? I'll give it a crack. And I think, Gary, what motivated that at the time was Pirate Radio had started up in Ireland around that time. But I was aware of, of the template in New Zealand where something similar had happened a couple of years before and the New Zealand government had given licences to a couple of, of commercial stations. And I could see that happening in Ireland. And I also could see Galway getting one because of the city and the west of Ireland and all that kind of thing. So my, my kind of general philosophy was, let's go and work in RTE for a year or two, get a bit of experience. And when this event does inevitably happen, then you'll be in prime position and, and head back west. And that was late 1979. And I haven't quite made it back west just yet. But anyway, <laughs> I'm open to offers at this stage. Um, and then... You got into the television thing quite yeah, I was in, quickly. I, I was in, I was in um, radio sport for about four years, I think, and covering mostly rugby back in those days and went on the Lions tour to New Zealand oh. in 1983 uh, as our man on the tour and all that kind of stuff. Um, but obviously in the, in the radio sports department, you were doing everything. And in fact, a lot of what I did back then also was covered motor racing, which I really enjoyed because RT used to cover a lot of the races out of Mondello Park. That's and, right. And give big coverage because it was largely down to a, a producer in RT called Michael O'Carroll, who was a big motorsport fan and all that kind of thing. So that, that's kind of what I was doing. A bit of this, a bit of GEA one day and a bit of soccer another day and going around the place. But in 1984, early 1984, and just to explain to people, the radio sports department and the TV sports department back in those days were two very separate yeah. departments. They were in different parts of the complex, 
But philosophically, they were in very separate places as well. And there was a lot of rivalry uh, between the two sections. And anyway, I'm in the radio sports department and I get this phone call one evening from a gentleman called Morris Reedy, who was an editor in uh, TV sport. And he started talking to me about maybe doing some television work. And I kind of said to him that I was, you know, open to it and yeah, why not, kind of at some point and all that. So we're having this kind of general conversation and I said to him eventually, I said, when when are you thinking about something like this? And he said, how are you fixed on Sunday? This was on Thursday, by the way. And what they wanted was a second presenter on Sunday Sport. Fred Cogley was the main man, mm. but they wanted to do some other, uh, the other sports news of the day, part in the featured match and whatever. And I remember when Mara said this to me, the first thing I thought was, do I have a clean shirt? And then very quickly, the second thing I thought was, do I actually have a shirt? Because obviously working on radio sport, it was jeans and it was a t-shirt and all that. And I wasn't married at the time. And I was living in this rented house with two other fellas and sartorial elegance wasn't our strong point and all that. So it's all this kind of thing. And anyway, to cut a long story short, on a Sunday night, I found myself in the old Studio 3 and RTE and sitting there and there was such a difference between radio coverage and television coverage and being in a radio studio or a TV studio and I'm sat there and there's fellas trying to give me some late instructions like when I do this signal or I do that signal it means this and it means that and I'm thinking to myself, I haven't a clue what he's talking about you know and and anyway we go on air and I did my section and I thought I was just dreadful I mean I just it was like embarrassing but at the end of the program they said to me are you around next Sunday and and it began from there but what I didn't know at the time was what they were actually doing was looking for a new presenter for the Sunday game because a guy called Jim Carney had been the presenter and I had replaced Jim in the Tomb Herald it was when he left the Tomb Herald that I got that job Jim was installed as the presenter of the Sunday game. And in fact, he would have been there for a long time, except Jim had a very bad car accident and that put him out of the equation. And in 1983, uh, Sean Ogre Callahan did a year as the presenter of it. And there had been a couple of other people before McDonald's that. McDonald's. McDonald did a year. I think Bill O'Herlihy even did the first year. Sunday game started in 1979. Um, but anyway, this is 1984 and they're obviously stuck for somebody. And, and this was the process they were going through and wondering, would your man be up to it? And, and then the, the, the position was actually offered to me. But it wasn't that simple because I was attached to radio sport and the people in radio sport completely objected to me doing this thing. So an arrangement was made where I could do the Sunday game, providing I did all my radio shifts as well but the Sunday game in 1984 had a Monday program as well it was the centenary year of the GEA so they had this Monday game as well so I had these two commitments and then all the other radio commitments as well to to fill in my obligations to them so for that particular year I worked seven days a week and sometimes 14 hours a day now okay it was the summertime it wasn't for the, the year long and all that but in my head at the end of it clearly this couldn't continue and when I was asked back by the sports department, the TV sports department, the following year. I just said to myself, something's got to give here. And a row started, to to put it quite simply, um, in which basically I just walked out from radio sport. I just said, I can't be doing this. You know, they, they wouldn't facilitate me. So it was either one thing or the other. And I left radio sport to go to the TV side of things. But it was made very clear to me. Once you walk out of here, don't ever darken our door again. And that's the way it stayed for a very long time. Well, I do actually have some experience with this because unbelievably, uh, you may not know this, I actually worked doing Bulletins in 2FM in the mid-90s. Yeah. So I know I, I know what that culture was like and I know that there was an incredible, and almost, antagonism. Oh, there was, yeah. Uh, yeah. And you didn't just, uh, you know, uh, saunter over to TV to sure. do something. That yeah. wasn't cool. Oh, no, no, they were very, uh, and it's important to say where because it's a, it's a very different place now. And as you well know, 
the, the sports department is one unit and everybody's yeah. there together and works in a much more harmonious kind of way. Mm. Um, but back in those days, like the people who were in, involved in the management of radio sport, that was their kingdom. Kingdom. And, and yeah. simply they didn't want, and I could understand it from their point of view, they took exception to the notion that they had trained this bucko from the West to come and do radio bulletins and now TV wanted to nab him and they just thought no that's not going to happen we're not letting that happen you know so I, I could understand their point of view but I also understood my own point of view wanting to advance my career and to heck with that kind of you know so oh yeah I was, well, it, was, it was very simple Gary I had a decision to make and it didn't take long for me to make it you know? okay so 34 years at the Sunday game 35 35, yeah. right, 35. Inclusive, yes. if you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the memories must be too many to tell. I mean, it must have been an extraordinarily exciting place for you to be, given that you were a lover of GA and now you were, now you were actually um, presenting those programs. Although, one thing that does can happen is that you start to see it as a job and your, your love for it can kind of... Did that happen to you? Can can in some way it can, but were, yeah. muted a bit. I know what you mean, yeah. But there were there were a couple of things about that that kind of took me through those thirty five years. Um, one of them was that the Sunday game when I started on it was a popular program, but it began to become more popular as the years went by, and it became more of the institution that it has become. And then in the early nineties, this seismic shift when we started doing live matches. Because Sky TV had started doing this, obviously, in the Premiership. And Tim O'Connor, the then head of sport, saw this opportunity and that we would do live matches, which I never thought were going to work because small country, small population, people play GA on Sundays, who's going to watch matches? Turns out he was very right and I was very wrong about this because once we started going live, it took the Sunday game and it took GEA coverage to a different level or a couple of different levels sure. if you like and and that moved it through there but the other nice thing about doing something like the Sunday game or the, the GEA season was it wasn't from one end of the year to the other it wasn't like you wake up on a Monday and this is your job for the week or whatever you did this intense period of the Sunday game or maybe the league programs during the springtime and that but then there was there was a lull after that come the end of the summer and the All-Ireland Finals. And you didn't appear on television again, really, for a couple of months. It might have been an All-Stars or something else, but generally it was off the air. And that kind of recharged the batteries again. When you when you got back on, you were ready to go again. It's not like I did this last week and I did it the week before and I did it the week before. So I never felt over the 35 years, okay, yeah, I had done it all. I had done the All-Ireland Finals and done all the championship matches, but I never felt kind of like this is just a job. There was always something... Every season was different and every season brought its own. And let's take, for example, the mid 90s when you had exceptional things like Clare winning the All-Ireland for the first time in whatever number of years. Derry won their first All-Ireland, Down won an All-Ireland. You know, the, the non-traditional counties, if you like, were starting to win. Wexford won in 1996 after a long gap since 1968. And Dublin so, actually managed to win in 95 as well, uh, if Dublin football, after a long gap. It did too. because, I mean, Dublin football was in a poor place at that time, you know. Mm. And uh, and there, there were, they'd be always at the beginning of the year one of the favourites and then like never went anywhere kind of. So that, that also was very much... Uh, a part of the, the like they had lost an All-Ireland final in the early 90s that they should have won and things like that so you had all this thing and awfully hurlers winning uh, against the odds and uh, and all of those things just made presenting the championship season something different something special Donegal winning for example um, back in when did they win 1992 I think it was um, they did 92 I was at that match yeah yeah and and it was as well as that, Gary, you weren't just simply presenting the programs, but you were doing preview things to matches and all that. And you were traveling around the country and you were going to all these counties. And there was such a welcome like for the Sunday game, the Sunday game team, because they weren't used to it. It was something different, like for a lot of those counties, particularly in Wexford, for example, in 1996. I mean, the atmosphere in the county was just simply electric and you you were kind of part of it you were kind of caught up in the whole experience if you like you know so there were special days there were they really were wonderful and it, i wonder you know at that point we were 
moving into the Celtic Tiger period as well, things were getting better after many, yeah. many years yeah. of kind of emigration and, and, and unemployment and all of those sorts of things. And also on the peace process. I wonder, how did that whole peace process affect the sort of thinking of the GA, or did it? I think the peace process had a positive effect right across the board, obviously, in terms of this island and Northern Ireland. And, and the GA would have been caught up in part of that process themselves, kind of in, in this sense of opening up uh, the society and the community maybe in the north, a little bit more, a little bit more tolerance. I mean, I can remember going up and down to the north back in the day, either doing GEA stuff or in my rally driving days doing the Circuit of Ireland and God almighty, it was like there were British Army everywhere, yeah. there was, you know, UDR everywhere, you know, it was just the tension was just unreal, kind of, you were you were in a cold sweat until you came back across the border again. And then gradually after the, the process happened, gradually you saw all of that just slowly slipping away, or in, in actual fact, fairly quickly slipping away as it turned out, and it becoming just a more pleasant place to go and a more pleasant atmosphere in the north and more openness between the, the, the two communities, if you like, there. And the GE, I think, benefited from that. And it is interesting that through that period, counties like Armagh winning All-Ireland and Tyrone started winning All-Irelands and all that. Now, I'm not saying that, that they won it because of the peace process, but it was just part of that kind of feeling, if you like, in the whole Wasn't thing. Wasn't the ban lifted on people who were members of security forces yeah that that was part of it that was i can't remember exactly when that was but yeah there was that uh, ban being i remember a lot of fellas telling some very mad jokes up in the north about what what this would involve with the gea and maybe the the um the udr and all that kind of stuff but anyway <laughs> that's another day's that's work that's another day's day uh, <laughs> and um because yeah, because I, I was at the sense that the jays it, it's it's a it's such a massive organization, and obviously it's got its roots so much in, in, in politics as well. I, mean, I know it's uh, fundamentally uh, a sporting organization, but also culturally in every other way. You know, mm. uh, over the years it became... When you were growing up, did you get any sense of... of you, know, you, you liked football, but, but you liked soccer, but, you know, it was a banned, proscribed game. Did you have any no. sense? No, never... Never to that extent, um, but the ban was there, and and there was that kind of almost line in the sand. But that was more a philosophical kind of thing, and I don't think down the line with people who just wanted to kick ball that that really made any difference. Back, for example, in the sixties, the World Cup was held in England, as you know, in nineteen sixty six, and they won it, and and that had such a huge impact on Irish television because you were seeing all these countries playing that you wouldn't normally see like obviously Brazil and blah blah and so on and that had a huge influence on on sport in Ireland back in that time and then just after that you had Manchester United and the George Best era yeah and like George Best was a bigger superstar of course around Ireland and the west of Ireland than any of the GEA players would have been at the time probably because he was more visible and all that kind of stuff so no I to 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 put it in context you were aware of all this but but it was never part of it. in actual fact I was the club delegate for our own club at home Killerwerden um, that went to the county convention back in the day to vote against the ban the original ban mm. And, but I mean, everybody, like, fellas will tell you stories about fellas being, like, inter-county players, going to soccer matches, going to see Cork Hibbs play, or whatever the case may be, and then somebody will ring them up and say, well, you want that soccer match? Somebody the Vigilance Committee. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, they were too vigilant. They got too good. There's a story, apparently, I think I read on the GA website, about a guy called um, Eddie Devlin, who played for Tyrone, I think. And that sounds like a troll name, yeah. He was in UCD and uh, he, he was apparently banned in 1953 for being unlucky enough to be seen cycling by Lansdowne Road in the day of a rugby match. Yeah. Now, he wasn't <laughs> at the game, but I, I heard that the guy, they had to get slightly less vigilant people because the vigilant people were too good. Yeah. And they were getting all the good players anyway. So, yeah, so yeah, they had yeah. To. Um, Moving along, uh, uh, Michael, now you've uh, some, some, some big characters you've got to deal with because I've often wondered, uh, you know, in, in the football, obviously, doing that very match and stuff, we made a living out of the politics and the, yeah, the interpersonal yeah. rivalries and all of this. 
you deal with some heavyweight characters as well. I mean, amongst others, Joe Brawley and, and Jared O'Connor we talked about earlier. It must be tricky dealing with people who are that, they have a big presence and a lot to say. It was tricky, but there was, there was a kind of a balancing act in all of this because I genuinely believe, Gary, that our um, presenters and our panellists, I should say, in RTE, across the board, whether it was the Sunday game or the soccer coverage or the rugby coverage, were better than what they were producing across channel, man for man, because they were more insightful and more editorially aware and all that. But, but that also did make them tricky, some of them tricky. And very few of them just played the party line or just said what they felt was going to be popular. Now to contextualise this, this was to a degree the culture that was set by Tim O'Connor, who was the then head of yes. television sport, because he yeah. was quite a he was quite an out, outspoken guy himself. He was, yeah, he totally was, and and he wasn't. He didn't have his his foot in any camp or waving a flag for any sport. In actual fact, Tim was brilliant at having a great sense of what would make good television, yeah. and he really didn't care who liked it. When I say didn't care who liked it, he didn't feel like he had to kowtow to the GEA or the FAI or anybody else. In fact, there was one occasion when <laughs> the, the uh, criteria for the GEA agreeing to allow their games to be covered in RTE going forward and you're, you get to these negotiation points, but they would only go forward providing we drop Pat Spillane from the, the panel. So obviously that didn't happen because he's, he's been no. still there kind of, you know, and all that. But they were so, they being the sports organization, so sensitive, like to th- things being said about them and blah, blah, blah. And Tim really just didn't care about it. Yeah, sure. You know, so. that must, the politics of that must be quite tricky with the GAA because then I, I do get the feeling, it's, I mean, I, you know, that there's, there's sensitivities there. Now, I know there is in all national sporting organizations mm. and nobody wants, and they're, they're uh, quote unquote amateur players and so on, although... You know, they train like professionals. Oh, sure do. Um, but, sure do. Uh, so, so there is a balancing act uh, in that regard. But having said that, uh, the people who are good in television tend to like to say things. And yeah. And that's, that's kind of a, a separate issue. And in a way, so what? Yeah. You know, like somebody like Joe Brawley, I find Joe Brawley <laughs> extraordinarily hypnotic. I wouldn't like to be in a witness stand with him. Uh, I know. I'd, yeah. You'd tear my story apart. Yeah, I've never known anyone who's got the capacity when he's asked a question. Oh, actually, Elon Musk is the only other guy yeah. I know when he's asked a question. He goes, "That let me think about that." I know. Yeah, yeah. And then he takes about three seconds before he answers, and you're listening to his every word. Yeah. What's he like to work with? Uh, he was great to work with, but tricky. Um, because you didn't know what he was, as you just said yourself, you didn't know what he was going to come out with and you had to be totally awake all of the time. Something happened that Joe was explaining to me, not involving the Sunday game or involving myself, but he was on radio with Des Cahill one night uh, on, what was that evening programme called? Talking, not, not Talking Sport, but oh, I'll think of it in a second. But anyway, he said something that caused a furore. And, and I was talking to him the following week. I was talking to Joe the following week. And I said, what were you talking? You know, why did you say that? And he said, oh, look, he said, I'm at home in the house and I have my feet up on the desk and I'm just talking on the phone. And I, just, I kind of forgot I was talking to Desk Al on the national radio, you know. So, and that sums it up. That sums it up. He just went off on a muse about something and... And did the same thing on another occasion with me and one of our colleagues that turned into a, a desperate furore afterwards. Was this the Marty Marcy? Yeah. yeah. What, when he said you look like Marty Marcy? He, he just, again... Like How did you, you didn't, you, you reacted like you were a bit irritated by that. Well, of course I was, because, I mean, it was an outrageous thing to say, and I'm not even going to repeat it here, because you, you either know what I'm, people either know what I'm talking about or they don't. But anyway, it was one of those scenarios where, again, like that, when the programme finished, and I said to Joe, what the hell? was that about like what the hell were you thinking and I as he began to explain it to me I began to realize that he wasn't actually thinking when he said it kind of, you know mm-hmm. and it was that kind of thing but if there was an amusement in it all when he made a comment about Marty Morrissey in the middle of the program and it was like pulling the pin in a grenade and the the other panelists <laughs> reacted very strongly to it and kind of did the Joe you can't say that kind of thing but 
All the time in my ear, I can hear the producer of the programme who is down in the bowels of Croke Park in the OB truck. And he's he's obviously doing different things and he's preparing the next item on the programme and all that. But it was like, you know, one of those delayed reaction kind of things. We we immediately deal with it on air on the programme and say, Joe, withdraw that. You know, you can't say that about people and whatever. And then about five seconds later, Noel says, I can hear Noel saying, what did Broly just say there? <laughs> and then after we dealt with it, now he's going, he can't say that. He and you, you're kind of, you're thinking to yourself, uh, no, it's okay. We've actually dealt with it here. <laughs> we, yeah, he can't say that, but he can. But let's but go for more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's not do it but let's do it that's a classic Irish kind of yeah. um, uh, it also has to be said um, for, for people who might know um, uh, Marty Morrissey Marty Morrissey is actually a rock star I mean he has the he, he has the presence and he has a huge level of super fandom oh, 100% yeah. so, so um, but I, I think part of that I'd is, like to look like Marty Morrissey yeah. <laughs> but I think part of it Gary is is how you react yourself to to being uh, in the public profile, and and some people just it's their playground, it's their it's their stage, uh, yeah. and other people don't necessarily like it. Um, Did you like the fame? I didn't part particularly know, but but I understood it. You know, uh, where Marty really enjoys it, he really enjoys meeting people, and he enjoys yeah. the crack, and he enjoys people coming up to him and wanting selfies, and that's perfectly fine. I'd be the kind of person coming out of a GA ground who would rather go around the back of the stand to avoid people. Okay. Not that I'm unsociable, I hope, but uh, but just I wouldn't be into that, you know. And and other colleagues of of mine would have been like that as well. But but that's that's your own personality. Some people are good at, at just being able to to be out there amongst people and enjoying all of that kind of razzmatazz or circus or whatever you want to call it you know and, and Marty's very he, he's very good at that kind of oh, thing he's he a very big personality so that's all uh, fine and you know uh, I'd say from Marty Morrissey's perspective is one thing worse than getting talked about it's not been talked about so um, I'm sure he, the old adage yeah. he, uh, yeah. I'm sure he made capital out of it and yeah. uh, all that anyway there's a few things before you go I want to I want to ask you about I know you, yeah. you've covered quite a lot of sports during the Olympic Games um, one of the moments and I spoke to you about this a while ago is um, you, know, you had a question to Jack Charlton many years ago and I remember Jack Charlton said I'll do the, can I do the impression yeah, of course. he says um, he, he effectively accused you of, of asking asking the question yourself so he says yeah. are you about asking me a question <laughs> I remember that what was that like that moment to get barked at by Jack well it's never it's never nice to get barked at on the air by anybody and especially somebody with such a big gruff personality as Jack Charlton um, this was a match it was a qualifying match for the Republic of Ireland against Luxembourg in Luxembourg and Ireland I think won it 2-0 I think it was the score on the evening but they played really dreadful against a nothing Luxembourg team there was a guy playing midfield for Luxembourg who was a postman who had been delivering the post earlier in the day and I think he'd come to the match on his bicycle or something like that. I mean that was genuinely that was the level that Ireland were playing and didn't Ireland didn't play particularly well but they had a very star-studded team at the time but one thing that sitting there watching the match I was assistant to George Hamilton who was the commentator and I was doing the interviews afterwards and watching the match one thing that befuddled me about it was Frank Stapleton was playing centre forward in that team but Frank had a back injury there was a guy called Tony Galvin playing down the That's wing right, from yeah. Spurs yeah. and Tony kept screaming past everybody on the pitch and pumping over crosses into the box that Frank wasn't able to jump for and this was what began this debate with Jack Charlton I questioned Jack about this tactic how dare you and it was exactly that kind of, you know. <laughs> like he's, he started the usual when I, when I began the interview with him after the match he started the usual thing they're a very good team and I wish they weren't obviously and and all this and the more I tried to pick his bones on these tactics and why we only won the match 2-0 and all this he got gradually more irritated and and really I should have seen the coming I should have seen the danger signs that the explosion about to come but it wasn't so much the way Jack reacted that actually bugged me about the whole thing I have to be honest about this what bugged me was the way that Giles and Dunphy reacted because they more or less, when I went back to studio, kind of 
what kind of a plonker is Leicester kind of you know to take on the, the eminence grease that is Jack Jordan and all that so didn't you know. um, uh, uh, Bill said I won't say I thought Jack was a, a bit rude there and um, <laughs> Jack Giles you, I think Giles he says um, yeah well the question went down a bit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> listen well yeah it probably did. <laughs> uh, it was very. It was, but I'm sure. That, did you speak to Jazzy about it? No, no, I didn't. I mean, it's. It was one of those things, there. and and uh, and in a kind of a way, it was. It was almost third party because let's face it, they're back in the studio in Dublin, and I'm standing on the side of yeah. a, a small pitch in in Luxembourg, kind of, you know, and and but it was kind of slightly bizarre afterwards because. Uh, Mick Byrne who was the physio on the Irish team he decided to have a go at me about it and and really I'm kind of standing looking at Mick who was about half my height and I'm thinking Mick go away leave me alone kind of you know and all it was so it was all this kind of thing but then having said that Kevin Moran when this was going on was standing beside me and Kevin whom I knew was being kind of more or less supportive and so there was this bizarre scene at the back of the stand with the Irish team and and a bit of a kind of a, a kerfuffle about the whole thing. And it was like, you know, what am I doing here? Why am I listening to these people? <laughs> kind of, you know, anyway, if you were if you were the if you were in the Oviedo Stadium or or Wembley or something, it might be a different. But you're in a pretty small pitch kind of in the middle of nowhere, kind of listening to this golf. You know? And it's your job to ask and questions. My job. Exactly. Uh, which yeah. is a fair question. Yeah. Stapleton was injured. Yeah. And yet. Was it, well, it was a it was a genuinely uh, valid question. You know, why did you deploy this tactic when it clearly wasn't working? You know, so well, at least he didn't say to you what he said to Dunphy. Remember, that, remember that um, he said, or he said about Dunphy, "He's a bitter little man." Remember <laughs> in the World Cup in nineteen ninety? Yeah, 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 yeah. That was uh, so. I presume it goes with the territory. Oh, when sure. you ask pe- big personalities questions they don't like and sure. you're holding them to account. Yeah, well, I mean, this, it's the classic scenario with so many people like that, so many sports people, players or management or whatever the case may be, that they tell you that they don't take any notice of the media and they tell you that they don't read the papers or they don't listen to what so-and-so said on whatever sports program. But then at the first opportunity, they will start practically quoting you verbatim what somebody said and you know so <laughs> that's the reality that's the reality the real yeah. politique of it yeah. uh, Michael it's been really wonderful talking to you I think we've probably come to the end of our uh, time uh, I hope you enjoyed it absolutely um, it's, it's nice it's nice to be on the other side of the microphone you know answering the questions or rather than asking them for a change kind of you know and and the other thing that that I enjoy about doing stuff like this is, let's face it, Gary. Back in the day when I was a presenter in the sports department, you had to be kind of careful what you said, in case that you went back in and you were called into the office and somebody said, "Why did you either a say that, b why did you talk to him, you know, or anything like that?" Now I don't care. Yeah, that must be very difficult, though. I mean, very very difficult when your job is to ask questions and get uh, information. Talk yeah, to people. Yeah, it, it is. But I mean, it, it goes with the territory, and you have mm. to accept that. You know, as a as an RTE presenter, you represent the organisation. It's as simple as that, kind of. You know, um, and and I would like to think that I I took a, a reasonable responsibility about that, and would have been, I think, very loyal to RTE, and still am. Um, but at the same time, there's a freedom in being yourself that you don't have to answer to anybody and you don't care if anybody in RT takes offence at what you said or didn't say because it's none of their business, kind of, you know. Mm. So you, you, you kind of, you leave that behind you and that's part of the, the benefit of being retired out of the place and all that. Final question for you. Uh, uh, what, what, there's two questions really. What, 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 is, what are your greatest memory or what is your most amazing memory and, uh, and what now? for Michael Lester? Um, I suppose Galway winning the football final in 1998 for the first time in 32 years and having been in the wilderness in football for a big football county. Um, And a lot of that team in 1998 were actually from my own parish. Uh, And in particular, Porrick Joyce, who was probably one of the stars of that team. Um, And to to be covering that match, to be presenting that game, and it actually meaning something so personal to yourself. That's a, that's a standout. There were, there were a lot of standouts, obviously, down through the years, but that, on a personal level, was one. 
The other part of the question, what now? Look, I'm, dr- I'm I was going to say I'm drifting along. That sounds like I was kind of, you know, uh, directionless or something like that. But I take what comes and I see what comes. And I have an open book. When you've, when you've worked in the national broadcaster for 40 years and in the media for a previous five or six years before that, do you know what? You've, you've pretty much done it all. It's not to say that you're not open to doing other things, but you don't feel that there's any business left undone. And I'm in a I'm in a happy place in my life philosophically about all of that right. kind of thing. You yeah, know? well, you fulfilled your ambitions, and, really, and yeah. you don't need to do when, more of it per se. You very, might if the opportunity arises. Very, very quickly, just to go back to 1984 when I started on the Sunday game, um, I became flavor of the month for the rest of that year with RTE. And I got asked to do, for example, the Olympic Daybreak program in 1984 with Maya Doherty, which was RT's foot in the water to um, breakfast television and all that kind of stuff. Then at the end of that, myself and Maya got asked to do the All-Ireland Disco Dancing Championships <laughs> from the Cork Opera House. I can tell you that was a bit different. And, and this kind of stuff was going on. And then I got asked to do a junior science program on RTE. And it was at that point that I had to sit myself down and say, what do you want to be here? Do you want to be presenting the next thing on television or whatever? Or do you see a career for yourself, a path for yourself going forward? And I declined the science program and just simply said to myself, no, I'm sticking with sport. And if they want me to stick with the Sunday game, that's it. I'm happy with that. Happy out. Great. Well, Michael, it's been really interesting talking to you and congratulations. You have a great career and, and you seem very sanguine and happy about that and grateful for it, it's which is in, a nice place a, to be. In a word, Gary, to get fairly well paid for what I did, it's a bit of a joke. <laughs> <laughs> That's the last word from Michael Lesser. Michael, thank you very much.